Sont au dé Vesak, Vesaka Puja, the most important day in the Buddhist calendar. We recollect, remember, rejoice in three main events in the Buddha's life. The birth of the Bodhisattva in beautiful Lumbini Grove, current day Nepal, the supreme awakening, Sama Sambodhi, perfect enlightenment under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, Uruvela, close to the Nirandrana River, and number three, Maha Parinibbana, the final attainment of the Nibbana element without remainder, the final passing of the Buddha in Kusinara between the twin sal trees and the sal grove of the Malas. And of course the central event is Sama Sambodhi, because what made the Bodhisattva so special on his, in his birth, or what made the birth of the Bodhisattva so special, is the very fact that he was going to attain Sama Sambodhi. And the result of attaining Samasambodhi under the Bodhi tree is, of course, that when his body reached the end of his natural lifespan and the, the physical form and the four mental khandhas ceased, that the Buddha attained the final Nibbana without remainder. However, it took quite some major effort until the Buddha actually could make that supreme resolution. I think most of you have probably heard of that. When he sat down under the Bodhi tree, he resolved that he will sit and not change the posture until he has attained enlightenment. And he determined even if his whole body dries up and only sinews, bones and skin remain, he would not break the posture. But to get to that stage, there's obviously something happening before. And it took him six years, even with the great power me, the supreme power me of a future Buddha, a Bodhisattva, even then it took him six years, and you may remember that uh, the Bodhisattva got into the trap which many spiritual practitioners would fall in ancient India, but which many spiritual practitioners also still fall nowadays sometimes, to some extent at least. He rejected and understood that he can't get to a supreme awakening by indulging in sensuality. And um, most of the spiritual teachers understood that. So on that side was quite clear. You cannot become enlightened by indulging and enjoying all the desires of the senses. But the problem is that he flipped to the other extreme. Slipped this old no pain, no gain. You may have heard that in the gym. No pain, no gain. After, and the more it hurts, the more the gain, so to speak. And this is what they thought. 
what even the Buddha, uh, Bodhisattva thought. And then normally, to attain something outstanding, you have to make great sacrifices. So in order to attain supreme enlightenment, they thought we have to undergo the maximum suffering. And he started the ascetic practices. Basically in a self-mortification, self-torture. And they described that he would eat so little, one rice grain a day, or one colo food a day, cutting down, cutting down, and many other things. He would wear extremely coarse robes. He would sit um, in the full sun during the day when it's hot. He would sit in, a, uh, in the cold. He would bathe in cold water in the cold season. Anything that is really tough and difficult and painful, and he would do. And they say that he became so emaciated that in his own description, when he would touch his belly, he would feel his backbone, because there was only a layer of skin between. And he was so weak that even the devas didn't know anymore what he looked like, and they were arguing. Some devas said that he looks black, some said that he looks yellow, and some says, no, no, he always had this beautiful goat-like complexion, this supremely beautiful complexion, no, completely worn away. And he said when he would rub, because he felt tired and exhausted, and he would rub his limbs, and then the hairs would just fall out, rotten to the wood. So extreme he practiced, but, but no enlightenment coming didn't work. And one day he squatted down to relieve himself. And he basically toppled over and collapsed and was almost dead. So this is a crucial point now. No? He has practiced self-mortification. He had tried everything and he was on the hair's breadth of killing himself. And then a crucial insight occurred to him. A memory came up. When he collapsed and was just lying there and couldn't do anything, a memory came up. Can anyone remember what memory? What was it? Oh, no, yeah. When he was a young boy, there was a plowing ceremony where the king personally plows the first field as a kind of fertility celebration in springtime when the planting season starts. It was a big event. And the nurse of the Bodhisattva and they put him under a tree together with herself. And then she got excited and watched the ceremony. And the little baby was left alone, which is quite unusual in ancient India. And when they came back, after quite a long time, he was sitting cross-legged. And he had attained the first jhana, first level of full samadhi which is accompanied by rapture and bliss. And this is a memory which came to him. Now this strong contrast, now he has fought, um, tortured himself and was so ascetic, but no superior states appeared in his mind. And then he remembered you know, when he was actually physically strong as a little child, you know, that actually happened. And then the thought occurred to him, is this maybe the way to enlightenment? And then the insight arose, yes, 
the happiness he experienced in Samadhi is not a happiness connected with sensuality. It's not the happiness from good food, good music, dancing, indulgence. It's a completely non-central happiness. And second, the happiness from Samadhi is not connected with anything unwholesome. When people say revenge is sweet, and when they take revenge, they may also feel very happy or very unwholesome, based on anger and harming others. But samadhi is wholesome and not sensual. And the Buddha realized that this is a way to enlightenment. This is a Matrima Patipada. And he was stuck in these extremes, either sensual indulgence, and then he flipped over into the other one, no joy at all, only in the pain and hardship. But you're still missing the middle way. You're just flipping from one extreme into the other. And the middle way is that we develop happiness, but we have to choose wisely what happiness. This is more difficult than going for either or. It requires very careful discrimination. And he would reject any happiness which is sensual from indulgence or which is connected with anger, aversion, harming. However, he also would reject doing any harm to the body. But he would deliberately develop the happiness of samadhi. And even below that happiness, the happiness from keeping precepts, the happiness from being a good person and being generous and helping. However, he realized that he can't really do that when he is almost dead. So he started gradually taking more food. And he moved from this very ascetic place he stayed. You can still visit that. Do you know the cave? where the Buddha practiced, the Bodhisattva practiced the austerities, Prag Bodhi, on the other side of the Nirandjana River. And when you go there, you can really imagine it, because there's this tiny, sticky cave and gets all the afternoon sun. It will be really, really stinking hot there and sticky, and you can really sense this atmosphere of extreme determination but not really getting anywhere because it's no harmful. And when he gave it up, he went to the other side of the river and rather sitting in a cave in a, in a very rocky outcrop, very austere, and he now stayed in this beautiful river valley, close to the river where he could easily bathe, a little village where he could find a sufficient alms food on alms round, and then sitting under the Bodhi tree and practicing the jhana samadhi which I had just discovered is a way to full awakening. It's not yet full awakening, but it's only the way. And on the day when he would attain some Bodhi, he already had this beautiful complexion. Now they say that, again, the two days where the complexion of the Buddha, which is already outstanding, is even more beautiful and radiant, 
That's the day when he attains Samasambuddhi and the day when he attains Pavinibbana. And Lady Sujata had made a vow if she gets a child by requesting a Tvideva that she can get a child. And when that was successful, she wanted to express her gratitude now to the tree deva and when, the, when she saw the Buddha she thought he's a deva because he was so beautiful and radiant and then she offered the very specially prepared milk rice to him one of the two meals which have the highest possible merit of any dana to an individual the one by Lady Sujata offered to the Bodhisattva on the day when he attains Supreme Awakening, the other offered by the goldsmith Chunda on the day when he attains final Pavinibbana. And then he went, after the meal later, he went uh, bathing, he went back to the Bodhi tree. Now they say that this Bahman grass cutter Satya offered him several, seven bundles of grass to sit on. They call it Vajrivasana nowadays, you know, the diamond throne. But of course, you know, the Buddha lived still very simple. He had rejected self-mortification, but he didn't become indulgent, and not at all. He was just sitting you know, on grass. It's also simple you know, for the seven factors of enlightenment. So he would sit down, and you can still go to Bodhgaya. You still have a Bodhi tree there, not necessarily the same. And he would face east, was the Buddha's habit anyhow, no? always facing east, towards the river. And as it was a full moon night, no, this is a rising moon. I really love this uh, evocative image, no? the Bodhisattva sitting down under the Bodhi tree, facing east no? with the rising moon, illuminating him with his radiant complexion and then making the supreme determination. Now he knew he's ready, and his mind was imbued with the quality of samadhi which he had practiced. And then sitting under the Bodhi tree, he later reported in the first watch of the night, he recollected all his past lives, because we all have lived many past lives. Do you have any idea, Seth, how many past lives would we have had? Ten or hundred? A million? A trillion? Well, the Buddha said the beginning point can't be discerned. There was no... Whenever you go back to a previous life, there's another previous life before that. That's so how he recollected, and later he reported, he recollected apparently 91 eons a hundred thousand and millions of past lives. And he felt a great sense of weariness. Now what's the point? Whatever one can do in this world, maybe have done in some past life. If you think there's one thing I still want to do before I do this Nibbana thing, <laughs> if you have got a bucket list, you can actually strike out your bucket list. What is on your bucket list? doesn't matter, you don't have to tell me. But I can still tell you you have done it. Because in some past life you were a king or a president or a queen. 
in some past life you were a supermodel or a movie star in some past life you were a billionaire in some past life you got 20 children and 200 grandchildren whatever people aspire to and we have done it all except one thing there's only one thing on the bucket list which we haven't done yet yeah, Nibbana, somebody because else we wouldn't be here <laughs> we wouldn't be stuck in a, in a dying body aging, decaying body So the Buddha, not just a theoretical reflection, he could see it, and how he would circle through samsara, experiencing happiness and suffering, making good and bad karma, experiencing the results. And he felt a sense of nibbida, of disenchantment with that whole endless circle. He says that in the second watch, they divided the night into three watches of a approximately four hours each in ancient India. The second watch, he would contemplate the divine eyesight. So he would now see not just his own memory, but he would see in a grand vision how other beings die and they get reborn, how their consciousness gets re-established in a new birth and according to their karma. And how those know who commit good karma, who have respect of the noble ones who are not harming and hurting, how they attain a fortunate rebirth even in Devaloka, and how those know who are disrespectful, cynic, hurting, harming, breaking precepts, know how they are reborn in an unfortunate rebirth, even in hell. And he could see it all in direct experience. And again, a strengthening a sense of Nibbida, strengthening a sense of getting out of this endless circle. And then in the last watch of the night, he contemplated the Four Noble Truths. He contemplated the Paditra Samapada, dependent origination. He contemplated Idapachyata, this that conditionality. Imasmeng sati idang huti, imasupada idang upachati. When there's this, that arises. With the rising of this, that arises. When there's this, there's that. With the rising of this, that arises. That is uh, anuloma. Direct, forward direction. He also contemplated the other direction. Imasmeng asati. Idang nahoti, imasa nirodha, idang nirochati. When this is not, that is not. With the cessation of this, that ceases. This is the abstract formula, can you fill it in? When there's this, there's that. When there's craving, there's suffering. And with the arising of craving, the suffering will arise. When this is not, that is not. And craving is not, and there's no suffering. With the cessation of craving, the suffering will cease. And that is only one example. 
one of the most famous ones in the Four Noble Truths, the tracing it back, looking at the cause of suffering and identifying it as a craving. So that was the Kutra contemplation, Four Noble Truths. And once the Buddha could clearly see that ultimately it's nothing outside, it's not the weather, uh, the difficult neighbors, the politicians, this or that, uh, what causes our suffering on the deep level. On the deep level it is craving attachment, the defilements in our own heart. And once he saw that, based on that deep samadhi with that clarity, like an alpine lake, now the mind is so clean and so pure from the practice of samadhi that like in an alpine lake you can actually see what is in there. If the mind is disturbed, if you didn't practice samadhi like the bodhisattva and you look into the mind, you actually can't really see the deep defilements. What you see is the endless thinking, worrying, this and that, distractions, like murky water. But the Bodhisattva could clearly see you know, the asavas, the deep underlying tendencies and defilements, and seeing them, they could cut them out with that insight. And the moment the defilements are cut out, you now that is the experience of freedom and nibbana as a result. Now, this is a real defeat of Marva's hordes. You've probably heard another. You know, classic story now, he's sitting under the Bodhi tree and then Mawa comes with his whole army riding the elephant everyone is running away and the Buddha sitting there and then having to face the whole army of Mawa or the demons or the beautiful girls dancing in front of him trying to entice him the demons throwing their clubs and arrows and spears ultimately another Real battle is inside. And have you ever noticed the demons arising in your heart and assailing you? And the anger raising its ugly head, jealousy, tiredness, laziness. And this is the army of Mawa. Nothing outside there. No, the kosher one is inside. And that's the one he faced. He didn't give in to any of the defilements. And he saw that the defilements is the very cause that he was circling so long in Sangsaba. This is why he wouldn't tolerate them anymore. He wouldn't give in to them. He would contemplate them, comprehend them, understand them, and identify them as a troublemaker. But this is the most pernicious. It's just like you know, these people who have bodyguards, and then they get killed by their own bodyguard like Indira Gandhi, for example. It's the same with the defilements. And if you think we can rely on them, and but they're constantly betraying us. They're like, like a spy, like a secret service agent who sneaks in and sabotages everything. But once you have identified them, it's quite easy. Once you know that this is a saboteur, this is the secret spy, it's no longer difficult to take him out. And that's what the Buddha did. The removing craving, removing attachment, letting go. 
Csago, Patinisago, Muti, Annaleyo, Abandoning, Dropping, Letting Go, Detaching. So now the sun would be rising in the east over the river and the moon setting in his back. He was no longer the Bodhisattva, now he was really the Buddha. Strictly speaking, when he talks about himself, the Buddha would call himself Buddha or Tathagata only from the moment of Samasambodhi until Parinibbana, everything before. He doesn't have that insight yet. He would call himself the Bodhisattva, the being distinct for awakening. But now he is really the Buddha. And he is free from all suffering. What's the first thing he did? What would you What would you do first if you're enlightened? Straight onto Twitter, putting it on your Insta, letting them all know, calling a friend. Oh, this feels really great. I cracked it. Is that what the person does when they're really free from all conceit, from the delusion of self, and they're free from any thought? of I am, that they now wash off and have to tell everyone. Exactly. He would just sit down for seven days, enjoying the bliss of somebody. And that is his famous meditations, seven days continuously in bliss. You may know the traditional story is now that you would stand and gaze at the Bodhi tree unwinkingly without blinking an eyelid for seven days. I take that to be a metaphorical, because if you look at the original scriptures, the Udana, you can read it in Udana, you can read it in the Vinya in particular. Mahavaga gives you a story right after enlightenment for the first year or so. And the Buddha never said that he did that. Now this is metaphorical in my understanding. Because now how can you stand unwinkingly? But you can do it in samadhi. Unwinkingly, not blinking an eyelid. Now this is a metaphor for the fact that the Buddha has unbroken mindfulness. It's not like he's sleeping there for seven days. It's unbroken mindfulness. In that samadhi you know, for seven days, it's not just the rapture and bliss, which is, or maybe not even so much rapture and bliss, but pure equanimity, you know, the highest form of happiness. And this is totally constant, and without change or alteration for that period, but also the mindfulness, the awareness. I think this is expressed by this unwinkingly. So he was sitting and just enjoying it. And when he came out after seven days, and he would walk. And while walking, he would contemplate dependent origination, but it uh, samapada, which is kind of the most uh, refined or profound expression of the experience he had in his heart. When he attained Sambodhi, and he wasn't thinking. He wasn't sitting there thinking, uh, Craving is a cause of suffering, no, that is to cause. It was a non-verbal insight. 
But once he came out and after these seven days, and now he was walking and he was putting it into a description which you can express verbally, and that is in a dependent ordination, the 12 steps. And he would walk you know, all, all night you know, contemplating that in both directions. We're starting from consciousness and name and form, you know, which are mutually conditioning each other. And then you have that. And then obviously you have got you know, the six sense fears. When you have got six senses, you will have sense contact. When you have six, if, if you have contact, sense contact, what have you got next? Always feels nice or unpleasant. You know, we've got Vedana. The moment you hear something, you see something. And if you have consciousness and a living body, then obviously you have got senses. If you've got senses and you're conscious, then obviously you will have sense impressions, sense contact. If you have sense contact, there will always be pleasant, unpleasant feelings. When there's pleasant and unpleasant feelings, then usually craving arises. Because we don't like the unpleasant, painful feeling. And we want to go after the pleasant ones. Once there's craving for these feelings, then we really take up and cling and identify with the five groups of clinging. Body, feeling, perception, intention and consciousness. Once we take that up as I, me and mine, we identify, we cling to it, then we become, that is being, above becoming, being, existence. Once we have becoming, being, existence, then there will be rebirth. This process never continues, even when consciousness disconnects with the body can't identify well with that body anymore, so I grasp at a new one. When you have a birth, then you will also have old age, sickness and death and suffering. Now this is the anuloma with the grain. And Buddha walking, walking. The walking path is still there. Have you been to Bodhgaya? There's all the directions are very accurate. Now the Bodhi tree and the Mahabodhi temple is to the to the east of the Bodhi tree. And you can see in the Vajrivasanas between the Bodhi tree and the Mahabodhi temple, because it was sitting to the east and facing east to the river. And then the walking path on the northern side of the Mahabodhi temple, exactly east-west. That was a habit of the Buddha to walk meditation east-west and contemplating dependent origination, and contemplating the other direction. When there's no consciousness, there will be no living name and form. If you have no consciousness and no living name and form, no body and mind, now there will be no six sense spheres. If you have no six sense organs, you don't have the six sense organs functioning, then you will have you will not have any sense impressions without sense impressions. There's no pleasant and unpleasant feelings. So how could there be craving? If there's no craving for anything, now how would you identify and get stuck up and cling and grasp 
not all, anything in body and mind, without clinging, identifying, grasping. You know, there's no existence, there's no being, no becoming. Without being, becoming, there's no rebirth. If you're not born, can you age? If you're not born, can you die? No. If you're not born, can you have suffering? No. And there's patiloma against the grain. This is a difficult one, the more difficult one. We usually can do the other one. But patiloma is a difficult one. But that was a crucial insight. And after contemplating all night, the Buddha said, no, let's go to another tree. And he went to the Ajapala Nigroda, the goat herd's banyan tree. What did he do? Another seven days blissing out. And then contemplating and going to the Mutralinda tree. Another seven days blessing out. And here comes a big rainstorm. And the Buddha is sitting samadhi for seven days. You know that story, Seth? What happened? Muchalinda? Exactly, a Naga, powerful Naga king. Because he had faith in the Buddha and he wanted to protect him. As a rainstorm, the Buddha was sits there under a tree, freshly enlightened in deep samadhi. So the Naga curled his body around him and put the hood over the Buddha's head to protect him. And sometimes you have a Buddha statue where you can see the Naga, the snake-like Naga. Now that refers to that moment. And when the Buddha came out of Samadhi, Nagas, they can sh uh, shapeshift, they can change their appearance. And the Buddha comes out of Samadhi and he turned into a young Brahman human and uh, paid respects to the Buddha. But of course, the Buddha with his psychic powers immediately realized what happened and expressed his appreciation with a little gata, some verse. And then back to Ajapala Nigroda and another week of blessing out. And now we had the next full moon. Anyone know the next big event? Because so far it's only the Buddha blessing out. Ne? If that was all that happened and the Buddha had remained what we call a Pacheka Buddha, a silent Buddha, realizing Nibbana for themselves, but then not being inclined or not being able to share it with other beings. It wouldn't have been such a big thing for the rest of the world. When the two merchants came and the Deva told him, you want to make some merit and offer some food to the newly enlightened Buddha. That's obviously very special. And they bought him the honey cakes and they took refuge. And they were taking refuge only in two things, Buddha and Dhamma. So not the Tisarana, but only the twofold refuge, quite unusual, because there was no Sangha yet. So the Buddha had his first meal. He didn't have anything to receive it, because before enlightenment he had set his bowl floating. You know that story when he went to the river? 
and he put the bowl into the river and he said, if I attain some body, may it float upstream. And it did float upstream. And when it finally sank, Mahakala, the Naga, collected it as a big relic. And again, there is a literal meaning, but also a metaphorical meaning. If you want to attain enlightenment, you have to go upstream against the stream. So, but because of that, he had no bowl and he hadn't eaten now. And the four great kings came and they gave him four stone bowls, Selimayam. And because he didn't need four, he just put them all up together. That's a stone bowl the Buddha would use. Only he would use a stone bowl. It's normally not allowed for monks. But then something even more important happened. The Buddha was reflecting and he thought, the most people are really into attachment, most people are really into sensual indulgence, into enjoyment. Uh, most people have strong craving and they like to satisfy it and enjoy that. If I now teach the Dhamma against craving, against attachment, against the delusion of I, me and mine, they will not like it and have lots of trouble. And then his mind inclined to just continue blessing out, collecting some alms food and just uh, all good. Nothing left to do for him and he is uh, happy whatever happens. What happened then? Exactly. Now Brahma came because he could read uh, that thought in the Buddha's mind. And he came and he requested the Buddha, please teach the Dhamma. Please teach the Dhamma. And now the Buddha declined several times. But so much was he convinced that it will not be easy. And in the end, the Brahma could convince him to look and to use his new psychic powers, which, which the Buddha hadn't played around yet was no craving, he has got all these Buddha psychic powers. Uh, but again, he wasn't really interested yet, he hadn't played around with it yet. But when uh, Brahma Sampati pointed out, now there are beings which have little dust, who have little defilements, who have a sense of shame and who are keeping precepts. Now there are beings who have faith. And if you teach them, now they can make it. But if you don't teach them, even these good people, with power me, no, they will not make it. And the Buddha looked around with psychic powers and con confirmed that. And he saw, no, just like lotuses in the water, no, some are still stuck in the mud, some are in the water, some are getting no, towards the surface, and some are no, above the surface, white in the sunlight, above the water. So he realized no, this beings and humans in particular, devas of different level of power, me and faculties. But there are some who can get it. And for the other ones, they can at least increase their power, me, that they later get it. And that convinced him. And very lucky for us, he made the decision. And he announced, open are the doors to the deathless. And the drum, the drum of deathlessness is being beaten now. And he invited everyone to simply walk through, because the Buddha has opened that.
He has found the path now. We only have to follow the instructions. It's pretty easy, no? Imagine your wife the first time in Brisbane and you don't have GPS and then this intersection between the three tunnels. It's one of the most complicated intersections. You know which one I mean there? How do you call that one? Between the uh, airport link and the Clem Jones and the other one. And try to navigate that if you have never been here and no GPS, no map. Very tough. But if you put GPS on, is it tough to navigate Brisbane with a GPS? Not really, no? So why don't we use the Buddha's teaching as our GPS and just follow the instructions? Why don't we walk through the open door to the deathness? Have you ever rushed on what is it called, Black Thursday? What is this special offer day? Black Friday, ne? And people are sleeping overnight in front of the shops or rushing. Have you ever been rushing for a special offer, which is running out? So this store is also closing. And Nibbana is still on special, so to speak. Now the door is still open. The teaching of the Buddha is available. There are great Kobajans. Sometimes they are even here at Dhammagiri and you can meet them, offer food to them and listen to their Dhamma and listen to their Pavita. They are still in the monasteries, they are still a Sangha. And nowadays you can have all the teaching of the Buddha in any language, in the original Pali, all the translations, you can have all the Kuba Ajans on your phone, on YouTube, on podcast. You could start listening to that continuously and you will not even be able to keep up with what is being uploaded continuously, much less that you ever get through all the stuff which has been uploaded or there. So the limitation is obviously not the Dhamma which is around. What is the limitation? Dhamma no Dhamma Pati Pati, you know, to practice Dhamma in line with the Dhamma. This is a limitation. If you haven't attained freedom from suffering yet, if it still hurts in your heart, if you feel like, why may it so unfair, I hurt so much. Do you feel sometimes like that? Why do I have to hurt so much? Can't blame the Buddha. 2,500 years, the door is open. All we have to do is na dhamma nu dhamma pati pati, na practicing the dhamma he has given us in line with the dhamma. Practicing generosity, keeping the precepts, developing samadhi, which was so important for the bodhisattva, and developing insight, contemplating for noble truth, contemplating idapachayata. When there's this, there's that. And there's kilesas, defilements, there's suffering and pain in your heart. When this is not, that is not. There's no defilements in your heart, no craving, no delusion of I, me, mine. That is not. There's no suffering, there's no pain, there's no death. So let us all make a diligent 
consistent and persistent effort to practice that we can sneak through the door to the deathness before it closes. Let's sneak through. Thank you for your patience.